Hi, I'm Arlen Walker and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland and today I am once again out in the world walking in my neighborhood with my phone in my hand so that I can talk with you guys because if you were in my pocket all you can hear is pocket sounds. Um, but yeah, I am, I am uh, here to do some podcasting. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll sort of talk a little bit about sort of what has been going on with me and my gaming, and then I'll move in to talking a little bit about kind of projects and all that sort of stuff. So, gaming-wise, last weekend was the big uh, marathon that I did, and it was, it was all right. Um, It wasn't perfect, and the the big not perfect element is that I, by about 7 p.m., when I was supposed to be starting session three, was just completely gassed and was ready to lie down, and I slept for like 12 or 13 hours from like 8 p.m. 8 p.m. to 9 a.m. the next day or longer actually because it was I didn't I think I woke up once at like 9 a.m. and then rolled over and went back to sleep and didn't get woken up until my mom texted me at like 9 45 so yeah um was just completely worn out and that sort of ties into what happened this week which is that I um I'm not sure what caused this. I suspect it has something to do with. So, one of the other things is that earlier in the week, before the marathon stream, I got uh, dose one of the vaccine, the um, Moderna version. I'm pretty sure is the one I got, which um, is pretty cool. Austin Public Health um, doing their job and giving people vaccines and helping to prevent the spread. And so in a little while, I'll be at half level and then I will need to get dose two in a couple weeks. And then a couple weeks after that, I'll be at full until they say that we need a booster or whatever. Anyway, the point being, that I am uh, lightly vaccinated against the, uh, the the pandemic causing virus, which is pretty cool. Except, I suspect that um, that is tied to what happened on Saturday and this week, because this week, man, I just felt awful a couple of days this week. Um, Monday I didn't feel great, but I didn't feel really awful until towards the evening. Tuesday I felt pretty awful. Um, spent, uh, a good chunk of the afternoon in bed, so I need to make up that time, uh, over the weekend. But, and then Wednesday I felt so bad that I, um, 
I just decided to take a sick day and not worry about work at all. And I'm lucky enough to have sick time uh, available, so I was able to, to do that. So, yeah, that uh, that's what was going on. Um, and I, man, I just felt terrible. I was incredibly tired and that sort of awful kind of like tiered tiredness where you're, you're so tired. Not only do you need to rest, but while you're awake, you like can't focus on anything felt like. And, um, I felt horribly cold, just kind of. Like, I didn't actually have a fever at all, I don't think, because I kept taking my temperature every time I'd wake up. Uh, my mom got me a thermometer at the beginning of the pandemic, just in case. And um, turns out, this is the first time I've had to use it, turns out it's in Celsius. So I found out pretty quickly that 38, 37 degrees Celsius is uh, 98.6 Fahrenheit. That is, you know, healthy level. For most people and my resting level is actually below that normally um, I generally clock in closer to like 97 Fahrenheit and I was at about that basically the whole time so I don't think I had a fever at all but I just felt like bone chillingly cold and just impossible to get warm you know as if I, uh, you know, I had, so I had my normal blanket that I normally have, plus my weighted blanket, which is a, a gift that my parents got me a couple years ago. It's like a regular blanket, except we're sort of like a quilt, except the kind of quilted pockets have these little beads in them, and the beads are are soft but they uh, and they're not very individually very heavy but they add up weight so the blanket itself probably weighs you know 15 pounds or something which is incredibly cozy in my opinion um, a lot of apparently a number of people with various uh, mental health issues especially related to uh, the autism spectrum and find, uh, and I had known for myself for a long time that like heavy clothing, you know, I wear pretty thick, heavy uh, sweatshirts, hoodies, sweatpants. Uh, I've got a, a real nice leather jacket that my dad got me as a graduation gift from college that I really like that is also pretty heavy and that's part of why I like it I think I think it's fair to say anyway the point being that it's one of those things that can help um, people with certain mental health issues feel more comfortable um, less anxious is to have that kind of weight that kind of pressure so I had my my regular uh, Yellowstone blanket because I got it I think my parents got it when uh, 
on a Yellowstone trip. I don't remember for certain. Or maybe they got it as a replacement for that one that I got on the Yellowstone trip. I don't remember for certain, but it's really nice. Very soft, and it's got moose and bison and wolves and stuff on it. So I had that. I don't know why I'm going into so much detail about the blankets, but the point of the story is that I had my regular blanket, my Yellowstone blanket, and then I had my heavy blanket, my 15 pound weighted blanket, and then I had a quilt on top of that, and I was not actually shivering, but I just felt like bone chillingly cold underneath all those layers. Like I, I couldn't possibly ever get warm just from my body heat. Um, it was very uncomfortable. Uh, I don't, like I said, I don't think I ever actually had a fever, but it was, it was incredibly uncomfortable to be in that position. And I'm not entirely sure what it might have been. I have some, some ideas. One um, question, because I've, I've had a number of different tests performed on me essentially over the years to try to figure out what's up with my uh, system and one of the common tests that we've done I think three times now is for hypothyroid hypothyroiditis which is basically a fancy way of saying your thyroid underperforms and it doesn't keep your body temperature as high and so you feel cold and it also causes, often causes depression and causes like skin irritation and all sorts of stuff that seems like things that happen to me. But every time I've been tested for it, the doctor has said, oh no, you don't have, you know, your numbers look normal on your blood. So clearly the, the system is, you know, making the hormones and putting them out there and all that sort of stuff the way we would expect so I don't know if there's maybe I need to do some more research if there's like a, a receptor failure version of that or more particularly what I'm wondering is if there is sort of like a uh, a temporary or like a, a a hypothyroiditis attack sort of thing like where you know, you're doing all right and doing normal, and then for some reason it stops functioning the way it's supposed to, and you start feeling a whole lot worse, and I'm wondering if that's possible. So, I guess I need to talk to my doctor, and uh, I guess I'm sharing it with you guys, because I share lots of things with you guys. So, if you have any knowledge about those kind of issues, let me know. Um, but anyway, the point of the story is that I did not do any gaming this week except for the, uh, last Saturday gaming marathon and the, the last weekend games. I did play Night Below for about two thirds of the session last Friday because I... I took an accidental nap, but I woke up in time to hop in when a couple other players were hopping in. So I got in to that one. 
and uh, then I played Ash, which was a lot of fun. Um, we we went back to the the collapsing tower, or the tower that we caused to partially collapse, and we had some some interesting chaos ensued, and we fought some giant tigers. And yeah, it was good. Anyway, and then two-thirds of the marathon, and then I was completely out of it and was ready to just sleep for hours and hours. And I slept a, a lot on Sunday and Monday also. Not so much on Monday, but on Sunday, you know, I didn't play in the game, so I slept that long stretch to Sunday morning, and then Sunday afternoon, I ended up napping, and then slept a full night's rest Sunday evening to Monday morning, so who knows exactly when this stuff started and why, but I guess I need to talk to my doctor about kind of how things can occur and what it might be and all that sort of stuff, so anyway, I guess that is that. So yeah, my gaming this week has been relatively uninteresting just because I haven't done much of it. Um, but one of the things that I did do, which I'm going to talk about now, is that I... Um, so for Thursday nights, for alternate Thursdays, Jason Connerly, other Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast is running um, Barbarians of Lemuria. And we had sort of been talking about what we might want to play after. And yesterday evening, I got inspired and I thought, you know what? I could probably put together a um, Blade of the Iron Throne character sheet on Roll20, which would make it much easier to play Blade of the Iron Throne digitally instead of trying to use the PDF character sheets. Um, and then that would be a, a, a way to kind of say like, hey guys, why don't we play this game? Uh, which I would like to play some of. I have played, I've done sort of short introductory sessions but never like an actual play with other people for longer than like a test fight type thing. Um, so I would like to do that at some point to try it out. And especially as I'm rereading The Riddle of Steel, I'm sort of realizing that, you know, Blade of the Iron Throne, I had originally sort of dismissed, but that in my opinion, I think it is a perfectly playable system just with some quirks of presentation essentially that make it a little harder to sell to, to sell the PDF or the print book but that doesn't mean that you know a quirk of presentation does not mean that a game is unplayable by any means it does make it a little harder to play the game but especially 
or rather it means that it often takes more time and energy to get the game going to that state where you don't need to reference the rule book as much but you know anyway what I'm getting at is that I think that um Blade of Aaron Throne seems to me is probably a perfectly playable system that um we could we could try out and have some fun with um in which case it would help to have a character sheet so I built a Roll20 character sheet for it and it's very bare bones doesn't look very pretty but it has the functionality required for a Blade of Aaron's Throne character sheet and then I got thinking about Barbarians of Lemuria and Blade of the Iron Throne because they are games that touch on kind of similar subject matter, right? They're both sword and sorcery games kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of crunchiness, right? Because Blade of the Iron Throne has this, you know, super detailed combat system Whereas Barbarians of Lemuria is much more quick and free-flowing and flexible and is designed for sort of, you know, chaotic play, for lack of a better term, where, you know, everything can go off the rails because it just, that's just, it's so easy to improvise, so easy to do all sorts of chaotic things and all that. Anyway, the point that I'm getting at is that what I thought, I had thought for a while might make an interesting kind of conversion between the two, is rather than a Blade of the Iron Thrones long list of skills, what if you did skills essentially in the Barbarians of Lumaria style with a game like Blade of the Iron Throne so that the out-of-combat stuff was kind of faster and smoother and more freeform. In particular, I thought, you know, I could tinker with this character sheet that I've got to do something like that for a Roll20 game, and that might be a fun way to try out the game and teach it to the players and all that sort of stuff with a sort of more free-form concept. And then I got thinking more and got thinking about what about some of the other stuff that I like from Barbarians of Lemuria? How could you adapt that into Blade of the Iron Throne? And so what I've settled on is what I am currently calling Barbarians of the Iron Throne, which is a hack, a sort of hack mashed together of Barbarians of Lumeria and Blade of the Iron Throne and some stuff from the original Riddle of Steel actually all sort of put together into one single... Um, 
system. So the idea is that um, you have the six core stats of Blade of Daring Throne. Brawn, Daring, Cunning, Tenacity, Sagacity, and Heart. And these stats do basically the same stuff as they do in Barbarians of Lemuria. Um, so Strength in Barbarians of Lemuria converge pretty directly to Brawn in Blade of the Iron Throne. Like, they do basically the same thing in terms of the, the game function. But then Agility in Barbarians of Lemuria converts to either uh, Daring or Cunning because they, they sort of is some overlap between those two and they both sort of work for what um, you know what we're interested in with agility in Barbarians of Lemuria and then mind in Barbarians of Lemuria converts to tenacity or sagacity in this game and appeal converts to heart or tenacity and that last or tenacity is basically the idea that tenacity I feel like comes across as a little bit of a dump stat but it's actually really useful and I want to make it kind of clear how it's useful that like when a character is down to the wits end and all they have left is their kind of their drive their force of will to keep going that's where tenacity comes in so I want to I want to figure out how to a make it more useful and B make it clear that it's more useful in the game so I've got a couple of ideas for that um, the big one is that tenacity adds to your drama for per session basically it determines it's your tenacity rating becomes sets a pool of narrative meta currency per session that you might as well use in the session because you don't get to keep it so it gives you a sense of like having extra resources that you can use on anything as opposed to in um, the, the normal barbarian, not more normal Barbarians of Maria, the normal Blade of the Iron Throne thing where you have passions and drama and you have those are your sort of narrative meta currency, but you can only use them on things related to the, uh, the stuff, essentially. The, what the passions are about. You can only use a passion for a task related to the nature of that passion, basically. So, anyway, trying to figure out how to bump up tenacity a little bit to make tenacity into sort of a super stat or at least a good enough stat 
because I feel like it's super cool and super flavorful, but it's kind of not there yet in this version of the game. Anyway, so then the careers turn into four careers and the values of the Barbarians of Lemuria careers are turned into, you take the value of the Barbarians of Lemuria career and you double it and add one to that to get the value of the Barbarians of Iron Throne career. Because for Barbarians of Iron Throne, you roll that many B12s trying to roll sevens or higher. So a plus two on 2d6 from the career turns into a five, 5d12 for the task in Barbarian's Daring Throne. And if you have a boon that is related, you get advantage. And advantage in Barbarian's Daring Throne um, lets you reroll failed dice. And so you can um, basically that's one way that the the DM or game master or whatever they call it can uh, tweak the difficulties is advantage or disadvantage. Advantage lets you reroll failed dice. Disadvantage lets you forces you to reroll successful dice. So with disadvantage you get about a quarter of the successes, and with advantage you get about three quarters of the successes. Versus normal, you get about half because it's seven or higher on a D12. So, anyway, um, and obviously there's room for variance. You can always roll better or worse, but anyway, um, so you have careers, and the careers have an attached governing attribute which determines. Um, how high they can be raised, but otherwise they work basically like careers in Barbarians of Lemuria, where you just use them to um, do things related to the career. So if you have Sailor as a career and you're trying to, you know, tie somebody up, you say, oh, I was a Sailor, I know how to do knots. And the Game Master either says, okay, you just do it, or they say, okay, give me a roll. And so that's where the careers come in. Anyway, and the the math I'm not certain about, but I I like where it is right now. I'm gonna have to play with it some to see if there might be a better uh, form of it uh, to tinker with it a little bit. I like the idea of double plus one because it means that even zero-level careers will have a one in them, and thus you'll have a chance of getting that one success in easy tasks, as opposed to in Barbarians of Lemuria, where it's because you always roll 2d6, having a zero in a career basically just unlocks things that that career can do, even if you don't get any bonus towards it. So, I don't know. We're going to have to see how the conversion works mathematically. But then, the third part, and this is the other part that I think is really cool, is that I said, you know, 
Admittedly, one of the cool things about this system is its kind of complicated weapon proficiency table where like depending on how well you know how to use arming swords that translates to your knowledge of long swords and to your knowledge of cut and thrust swords and to your knowledge of mass weapons and all that sort of stuff and there's a really cool way that your knowledge transfers but that's complicated and in some ways it doesn't really fit the sword and sorcery feel where a sword and sorcery hero can just pick up any weapon and know how to use it. So what I thought is why not just turn all those melee proficiencies into one proficiency called melee and have that proficiency be equal to three times your melee rating in um, the Barbarians of Lemuria version. So basically, if you have a, a one in melee attacks in Barbarians of Lemuria, in Barbarians of the Iron Throne, you'll have a three melee proficiency. So you'll have three dice. And the same for ranged. So ranged weapons, your uh, all ranged weapons use the range proficiency. All ranged attacks use the range proficiency. So like throwing a dagger is the same as shooting a bow is the same as a javelin is the same as a crossbow that sort of thing with some variation based on the particular weapon type because for instance in blade of the iron throne like one of the things is that crossbows have a lower target number than regular bows which basically means that somebody with less dice is going to get more successes on the same roll. That was a, a bad way of explaining it, but basically if a crossbow has a target number of six or five versus a bow has a target number of seven or eight, on 8d12 the crossbow is going to have more successes, which represents the idea that the crossbow is easier to fire unskilled because you don't need as high of a, a ranged skill to use the crossbow effectively compared to using the bow effectively, which I think is cool. It's a neat way that the game models that idea that crossbows are sort of militia weapons often, where, whereas, you know, a longbow is a professional's weapon because it takes years and years of training to get really good with the longbow. Alright, I'm walking back in to my apartment and I'm going to finish up this section and then I'm going to probably talk a little more on the computer for this episode. But anyway, so basically the idea is melee and ranged have just general proficiency and so you know any sword that you pick up uses the melee proficiency and any ranged weapon you use uses the ranged proficiency and that's just it so that is how and we use three times the um the proficiency of 
three times the Barbarians of Lemuria rating for Barbarians of the Iron Throne. So Advith, my character, with a melee rating of one in Barbarians of Lemuria, gets a three melee proficiency points. So it's his reflex derived attribute plus those three points makes up his melee pool with all melee weapons. He could use a lance, he could use a spear, he could use a sword, he could use a dagger, whatever he uses, he's gonna be getting that uh, standard melee skill. And same with ranged, he has one in ranged in Barbarians of Lomaria, so in Barbarians of the Iron Throne, if he picks up a bow, if he throws one of his daggers, something like that, he uses his ranged proficiency plus his aim, which is another derived attribute. But then, then we get to one of the really clever things. And I'm gonna talk about that at the computer because this has gone on for way too long and um, I'm ready to sit down. So, be back in just a second and I'll see you then. So the clever thing that I was getting at is that one of the issues with these Riddle of Steel games is learning how to effectively use your the points in your pool so as not to die, basically. Um, and what I mean by that is essentially that... Um, one of the difficult things about these sorts of games is because it is very deadly and because often, you know, one hit can basically define a fight. Um, it's hard to learn. It's something that kind of, in some ways, I think uh, often only comes with experience to learn kind of how many dice do you use on a regular attack versus on a must-make attack versus on sort of a probing attack versus, you know, how many do you keep, uh, how many dice do you keep uh, in your back pocket for defense? How many dice do you, uh, opponents often have all of that sort of stuff. And so what I am uh, what I came up with was to do something a little bit like how Trudevan Chronicles works. So in Trudevan Chronicles, one of the things that is kind of a pain uh, in some ways, but it creates a really interesting kind of gameplay decision, is that um, you have different sources for the different points that are used to make combat actions. So for instance, um, you may have like a couple of points that come from sword or like right hand heavy weapon, right hand one handed heavy weapons, and a couple of points that come from shield. And those points cannot be used on the same things. Those sword points can only be used for actions with the sword. And those shield points can only be used for actions with the shield. And now there are also generic points that you can use on anything. And there are much broader categories of points. So there's like some points that are for all attacks and some point, all attack and defense actions and some points that are for all kind of maneuver actions that aren't attack or defense. And there's sometimes you get like... X number of points worth of free movement every turn that is just your character's uh, 
But basically, it works kind of like the way that the pool works in the Riddle of Steel in the sense that it gives a sense of a character's kind of physical and mental energy and awareness and ability to engage in combat that... Um, you know, what it means is, for instance, you can, you know, you can dump most of your points into sword attacks often, but you kind of have to save some for a shield block because you've got points that are only available to be used on the shield. And that actually creates kind of a nice mechanical thing where the player has a sense that, oh, I can just dump all these points into my sword because I've got these points that are reserved for my shield anyway. Now, if they don't have very many points reserved for their shield, then that may not be a very good strategy. But that is something that they can do, and that's something that I think helps new players have a sense of kind of how they're supposed to engage in combat in a lot of ways. Um, at least in, in my opinion, based on running combat in Trudevane Chronicles one time. So I thought, why not do something similar for a Riddle of Steel style game? And what I did basically was I said, okay, let's take the defense from Core Barbarians of Lemuria, which in Core Barbarians of Lemuria, what it does is it just adds to the target number when somebody tries to hit you. So normally they have to hit a nine. If you have defense two, that means they have to hit an 11. And so they're less likely to actually connect with you. So what I thought was why not put that into a defensive proficiency? And this is proficiency that is only available to be used in defensive maneuvers or defensive actions in combat. So you can use it to parry with your weapon or to block with your shield or to dodge an attack or anything like that. But you can't use it to um, attack with, meaning that a player who doesn't really know the ropes yet can say, okay, well, if I have six defensive proficiency, I've basically got six points in the pool just as kind of reserved for defensive actions. So I can make a big strike now and be certain that I'll have enough in the tank to block something if the enemy is able to block my attack, or at least hopefully that's the case. And I thought that's that's kind of a clever idea. And it also makes it so that for enemies, you know, the, the average guardsman who doesn't have any proficiency at all might not have any real um, ability to, might not have any kind of particular um, defense proficiency. But like for the sort of mid-tier enemies, right? If you think in Barbarians of Lemuria terms where there's mooks who are super weak and very easy to take down because they're just sort of there for filling out numbers. And then there's kind of mid-tier thugs who are, um, you know, tough, but they're not that tough. They're not as tough as individual player characters. Um, but, you know, kind of in Conan, the 2d20 terms they're sort of you know two or three of them is equal to a player character and then there's villains where each villain is the equal of a player character or even more deadly and so there's sort of three tiers and i like i like that idea for my um pulpy adventure games to have kind of mooks and thugs and villains as my kind of three tiers of enemy um 
as a way to give it a, a, a sort of variety to combat and to give players a sense like you can just say this type of enemy is a thug and have a sense of like what that means in terms of how the combat is going to go um or you could say like this guy's a villain and that means you need to be careful if you try to engage him one-on-one because he's gonna you know he might be able to wipe the floor with you individually because he's going to be really deadly um so uh, anyway, the idea is that higher level or, or more capable enemies will likely have uh, a couple of proficiency points in defense specifically um, to represent the idea that, you know, real people don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be stabbed by a, a sword or a dagger or anything like that. You, you don't want to be um hurt like that and so you save something and even if you think you put it all into the strike you probably save something even just in the back of your mind to defend yourself anyway and it's really hard to actually kind of put everything into one strike and so anyway the the idea is basically to um have that be a, a factor as the uh the characters, so the characters will have defensive proficiency, but also enemies may have defensive proficiency, and that may make it a little harder. Uh, kind of increase the survivability of the game a little bit. Not a whole lot, not enough to, like, break the, the, the numbers, in my opinion, at all. Um, but enough to make it so that, like, you know, people are more likely to kind of save something for the defense than they are to all-out attack, even if they sort of tried out all that attack, like I said. Um, so anyway, that's sort of my, I thought that was kind of a clever idea and a, a good way to help onboard players into the system to have some sort of like defensive pool, some, some, you know, dice in the tank, essentially, in case you make a mistake, you know, you over swing, you over uh, engage, with your opening swing and then you're on the back foot, well, at least you have something to defend yourself with instead of being completely out of it. So I thought that was a good idea and especially in it, it that it would function basically the way that defense functions in Barbarians of Lemuria, where defense is basically the best combat stat in Barbarians of Lemuria because it makes you harder to hit. And so if you want to be a combat beast that survives, you put your points into defense. If you just want to hit people, you put your points into the attacking things. But if you want to, you know, if you're trying to to be a survivor and, a, a, you know, a combat beast that can just, you know, fight forever, you put your points into defense and they whiff a lot. And that's sort of the, the same idea here, essentially, in this Barbarians of the Iron Throne um, system, that you put your points into defense, and um, that helps you to uh, survive, have a lot more survivability in combat, even if you're not necessarily tearing through enemies the way you would if you put it into uh, aggressive combat stuff. So, anyway... Um, that is, yeah, so the, the result, I think, is a system that um, is basically, so it's got the um, six core attributes, uses 
the um, three core proficiencies and then does Barbarians of Lemuria, not Barbarians of Lemuria style, a Blade of the Iron Throne style sorcery where you have to put proficiencies into sorceries to cast them, to actually cast spells. And so um, from the 12 points that you get to start with um, in uh, the the Barbarians of the Iron Throne hack, you can put some of those into um, sorcery proficiencies in order to be able to cast spells. And that does a nice thing too, where it means that if you want your character to be able to cast spells, they won't be as effective in combat, which Barbarians of Lemuria kind of does subtly basically because you have to because if you want to be a really good spellcaster in barbarians of lemuria you need to put your points into mind or appeal instead of agility or strength so you don't get those bonuses so you're not going to be as effective in combat but you still get the full four points towards combat abilities um whereas in this system it's kind of a different path towards the same result where if you put your proficiencies into um spells then you don't have those proficiencies in melee or ranged or defensive and so you're not going to be as effective you're not going to have as many dice in your combat pool as you would but you have those dice available for sorcerous things so that is sort of the idea behind that and then some of the other stuff so we adapt boons basically the same way boons and barbarians of lemuria basically always just give you advantages or disadvantages boons or banes give you advantages or disadvantages on um your career checks or certain other checks and so for career checks it's just advantage or disadvantage um some of them we do target number modification so like trademark weapon trademark weapon in barbarians of lemuria is um too good for being a just for not costing any more than the other boons basically um trademark weapon means that you have a special personal weapon that allows you to attack with advantage in Barbarians of Lemuria, which is a really big bonus considering the, that combat is basically a certainty in a sword and sorcery game. Basically what I'm saying is that in Barbarians of Lemuria, that boon is more valuable than a lot of the other boons. So in this system, the idea is how do you make it still valuable, but a little less valuable. And you do that, I think, by altering the target numbers of a particular weapon. So like if my character Advith has a um, trademark weapon, uh, an Atlantean broadsword, what it does is it subtracts one from the target numbers, which is a pretty big deal, but it's not quite as good as having advantage on, right? Advantage is like a minus two or a minus three to the target numbers, essentially, for the math. Whereas a minus one to the target numbers still feels powerful and will still make that sword feel special, but it um, it's not quite as... Um, not quite as useful as full-on advantage. And then the sorcery boons and banes work the same way because Bar because Blade of the Iron Throne already has a system where based on your um, sorcery uh, hierarchy, your, um, your choice at character creation of how many, basically how many points you put into your sorcery rating 
you can go from Mysteriarch all the way to normal down to doomed, and that changes your target number with regard to sorcery. So if you're doomed, you have a higher target number when um, trying to, you can't learn sorcery and you have a higher target number when trying to resist sorcery. Um, whereas if you are a Mysteriarch, you have a lower target number every time you, you can learn sorcery and you have a lower target number when you try to do sorcerer stuff, which means you're going to get more successes on the same number of dice. So essentially do the same thing in this system. Um, tinker with the target numbers rather than giving full on advantage or disadvantage to those checks. Um, which I think is a good, a good system to kind of use what already exists and is fairly well balanced to create a, um, a, a good system. And I think the system is going to work well. And then it uses the uh, passions and drama and karma from Blade of the Iron Throne. So your character has four passions, which are the four things that they care about. And those go up as you do things related to those passions. And you spend them for either extra dice on checks or um, for um, whatchamacallit. Or for um, character advancement, you can voluntarily lower a passion to gain those points as points towards character advancement to make your character stronger. So that's the feedback cycle. And then karma is a really interesting system in the Riddle of Steel and Blade of the Iron Throne. And I think there, there's definitely a version in Sword and Scoundrel, but I don't remember if there's a version in... Um, Song of Swords, but basically what it does is it allows you to, um, it essentially, it gives you a bonus on a new character if your current character dies based on how much karma you have accumulated. So every time you spend a point of passion to upgrade your current character, you get a point of karma. And as you get more points of karma, you get to spend those points on a new character if your current character dies. So your new character will be better than just a kind of regular starting character for the campaign, but won't be quite as effective as a kind of veteran character of the campaign, if that makes sense. Which I think is a nice... It's a nice system. It's a good way that it, clearly they have planned for the question of, like, do you start characters at level one? That old question, um, which, you know, people go back and forth about and different people have different opinions about. Do you start characters at level one and all that sort of stuff? But And this is not necessarily the place for me to, to uh, discuss that because it's a a discussion that deserves more um, time and engagement than I have to do here, even though this has already gone on pretty long or because this has already gone on pretty long, it would be worth uh, keeping this, keep trying to stay on focus. Try to try to focus Arlen, stay on target. The target is barbarians of the iron throne and the stuff that I did. Well, it's basically barbarians of Lemuria crossed with blade of the iron throne. So that you have blade of the iron thrones, passions system and drama system and dice rolling and combat with a number of the kind of simplifications from barbarians of Lumeria for careers for proficiencies for that sort of thing and the result i think is going to work pretty well when we hopefully test it out because I, I would like to test it out i've kind of put some feelers out there to a couple different people asked if anybody is uh is interested in testing something out 
And so um, we'll see. We'll see if I can get some people to uh, get some some people to bite to test out Barbarians of the Iron Throne. Um, see if we can't get a, a game going, uh, at least a, a sort of, you know, a one shot or a short test type game or something like that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very excited as, as you can probably tell. Um, I think it's a really cool adaptation of the system in a lot of ways The I think it takes the strengths of Barbarians of Lemuria and puts those into, um, Blade of the Iron Throne such that both of the games are stronger for the kind of hybridization in a lot of ways. And that's really cool. That's sort of an idea that I've been tinkering with, but I think the result is, uh, is good. So I'm excited about that. And um, yeah, we're going to have to see what happens with that. Um, right now I'm sort of pushing on the Thursday night group to see if they're willing to, to play that after we finish Barbarians of Lemuria that Jason is running, which um, Jason Connerly's game has been a lot of fun. He runs a great Barbarians of Lemuria game. So um, I am not um, rushing for that game to end, but also I would like to run Barbarians of the Iron Throne. And it would be cool to run it after or run it for people who have played Barbarians of Lemuria so that they have some sense of like, here's where sort of one half of the game's DNA or one third of the game's DNA comes from, essentially. So anyway, that is that. Um, oh, that's the last. So I, I'm going to pause the recording here and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about... Um, combat rounds and and that sort of thing and that's going to get us that's going to be the the end of the episode but i want to talk a little bit about that sort of thing um just a little bit to um yeah get into that because i've got some ideas for ways to adapt material from the riddle of steel into barbarians of the iron throne to add to the full experience all right, I am back, and I'm here to talk a little bit more about some of the mechanics from Riddle of Steel that I'm putting into Barbarians of the Iron Throne. So one of the sort of things about Blade of the Iron Throne is that they did kind of a story game initiative, for lack of a better term. They have a system called Limelights, and Limelights is basically the idea is... Um, they explain it as sort of like the way that a movie would show us, you know, a few moments of a um, combat until something interesting happens in that combat. And then we would cut to another combat. If, if there were, say there were kind of three fights going on simultaneously, we would see some of one fight and then some of the next fight and then some of the next fight. And we would essentially have these kind of, shots or short fragments of a scene, um, uh, one shot or a couple of shots uh, edited together to form a section of a scene, the the whole scene being the whole set of combats. Um, and the idea is each shot or set of shots would show us kind of one significant thing happening 
in each combat, right? So we would see, you know, if character A, character B, and character C, character A and B have swords, and they go, character A goes left, and character B goes right, and character C has a bow and is sort of on Overwatch, we would do like one limelight with character C shooting that bad guy, and then he would start reloading and we would switch to character A in combat and he would slash one guy and he would switch to character B in combat and he would parry and kick one guy off of whatever kind of precarious situation that they're fighting on and that sort of thing. And it would go on and on. Um, basically, I think it is a good idea. I think it is in some ways not really in keeping with the spirit of this kind of crunchy combat system in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm interested to sort of try limelights at some point to see if there's a way to get them to work, see how well they work. But for now, what I'm going to do is go back to the Riddle of Steel's kind of more traditional round system where every round has two exchanges in melee or it's part of an action for um, ranged. And basically the idea is that um, I think what I'm going to say is do um, Shadow the Demon Lord style fast turns, slow turns, heroes go first on fat, heroes fast, Villains fast, heroes slow, villains slow. And basically a fast turn is if you're moving or doing an action. And a slow turn is if you're moving and doing an action. So the result is basically really easy to say, kind of, I'm doing a fast turn this time, or I'm doing a sl slow turn this time, or that sort of thing. And then we just, we resolve melees together. And then any kind of out of melee characters, they resolve after the melees have resolved for fast or slow. So for instance, if there's those three characters and we have the two swordsmen on fast turns and the archer on a slow turn, well, we do both of the melees that the swordsmen are in on the fast turn. And then we do any other enemies that are on fast turns. And then we do slow turn for the, um, the archer and then slow turns for any enemies that are not, um, engaged in melees. So basically, um, yeah, that's sort of the idea. But one of the other things that I'm stealing from the Riddle of Steel is that there's a really cool system with um, range that has to do with the time it takes to get an arrow ready and fire. So basically, um, every weapon in the original Riddle of Steel has, or every ranged weapon has a certain amount of prep time that you need to get it ready to be aiming, essentially. And so with an arrow, the idea is you have to draw the arrow from the quiver and knock it and draw the bow, and then you're ready to aim and get ready to fire. With an arrow that is, you know, planted arrows you have to draw the arrow from the ground and knock it and draw the bow and get ready to fire. But that might take a little less time than drawing the arrow from the quiver. And that could be significant, right? That one or two second difference could be a big deal. And then if you already have an arrow knocked and the bow basically, you know, not quite full drawn, but kind of half drawn, ready to pull back and fire, you don't need any time to um, get your bow ready to fire if you're traveling like that, basically. Um, and so the result is a, a, it's essentially a cool way to create something kind of similar 
to what happens in something like D&D. So for instance, if you have in the Riddle of Steel, it takes four seconds for an arrow to be drawn from a quiver, knocked, and then the bow drawn to be ready to aim. So if you do four seconds of preparing and then two seconds of aiming and then fire the end of that two seconds, you're essentially firing every six seconds or so, which is basically once every combat round, which is, you know, in, in that's in modern D&D terms, once every combat round, that's a, that's a pretty good rate of fire, right? Um, certainly that is, well, we can talk about kind of archer historical um, stuff, but uh, the the historical testing and records and what the statistic that I'm familiar with suggests 12 unaimed shots a minute or six aimed shots a minute, that it takes about 10 seconds for an archer to draw, not, draw an arrow from a quiver, knock that arrow, draw back the bow, aim and fire, if they're doing all that, if they're just drawing the arrow, knocking it, drawing the bow, and sort of firing towards like a mass of enemies, they can do it about twice as quickly. That's the statistic that I am familiar with off the top of my head um, that seems like it is generally pretty well accepted. That's for um, the English longbow, but I don't think it takes much more or less time to draw a even a lighter bow, it's still a full draw is a full draw, basically. And and archers, talented archers, don't spend very much time with the bow drawn. They're sort of aiming as they're drawing it back and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, the point being, firing once every six seconds seems pretty fair, pretty, pretty good rate of fire for an archer, probably better than a historical character would have um, with a bow. And in, in um, at least according to that statistic that I um, am familiar with, that that once every six seconds is faster than the once every ten seconds that an aimed shot probably could be fired by a an archer with a longbow. Um, but by comparison to melee combat, it's much slower, right? Because once every six seconds versus two attacks every one set or two exchanges every one second means that a character in melee has the potential to strike a whole lot more often than the archer does. Of course, that character in melee, if you're close enough to hit somebody else, they're close enough to hit you. And so there's a lot of danger to be in melee. So there's a lot of reasons to choose to be an archer rather than being a melee fighter. But anyway, and then the idea in the Riddle of Steel, if your arrows are planted, it takes one second to draw them from the ground and then the full two seconds to knock them and draw the bow. So you're down to three seconds of prep. And if you spend two seconds aiming, then you um, are firing once every five seconds instead of once every six seconds because of having planted arrows instead of having arrows in the quiver, which is kind of a cool way to represent the idea that planting arrows increases your attack speed while still being a very kind of simulationist perspective on that. Um, it's, it's a very kind of simulationist um, version of that concept right that yes the arrow is a little bit quicker to grab and knock and draw but not a whole lot but the other thing that the riddle of steel has is that you can choose voluntarily to make a reflex test in order to shave one second off of your prep time 
at the cost of two dice from your final missile pool when you fire. And that so and that is subtracted from the maximum basically. So you can't you can't hypothetically kind of cancel out that penalty. It's always going to be a penalty. So if for instance you are like a legless tier archer, you could take four and you can do that multiple times. You're allowed to do it as many times as you want as long as you succeed at the reflex tests. So if you're like a legless tier archer and legless presumably has, you know, a ridiculous reflex score, ridiculous all of his attributes because he's basically superhuman, at least in, in the film. I'm talking about film legless. Film legless could take eight dice in penalty to his melee pool, to his missile pool, and essentially draw the arrow, knock it, and be ready to fire pretty much instantly, spend two rounds aiming, and have plenty of dice to get a deadly shot to fire every two seconds, meaning that he's basically firing at a rate of three attacks per round in D&D terms. That's pretty cool, right? It's neat the way that this is a sort of simulationist system with room for that kind of superhuman capability, right? That the, the rules stretch in this way, sort of like the way that the Pendragon rules stretch around higher than 20 um, for your, uh, your skill ranks. So um, the result, I think, is something really interesting that, you know, a legless tier character really could fire three times as quickly just based on having those high-level attributes and engaging with the system that is there rather than having to have like a special, you know, your attack rate goes up to 3-1 because of your um, kit or something like that, right? That's an interesting, it's kind of an interesting way to get to a similar result. Um, but of course, in a game like the Riddle of Steel, where every arrow can be um, often much more deadly than individual arrows in um, a D&D sort of game. You know, firing once every two seconds is, is, especially with the kind of numbers that Legolas would be firing with and probably being able to do, you know, a level five or six wound. So a level five wound in the Riddle of Steel or a level six wound in Blade of the Iron Throne, both of those are the maximum tier wounds and they're basically a death sentence for a character. Um, not always, potentially just like a lost arm or a lost leg, but probably a death sentence if it hits you anywhere in kind of center of mass or the head. Um, anyway, the point being the point of all this being that I basically took that system and ported it over to Barbarians of the Iron Throne to create an interesting kind of ranged combat um, procedure that fits in with uh, the the melee and missile melee and missile combat and movement and sorcery all kind of fit into this kind of round structure that I've taken from the Riddle of Steel and put into Barbarians of the Iron Throne, because Blade of the Iron Throne doesn't really have that kind of round structure. Um, so anyway, that is that is sort of what I've taken from the Riddle of Steel. And so the result, I think, is going to be a game that um, allows for really intense, awesome, visceral combat, but is designed to, especially out of combat, play quickly like Barbarians of Lemuria does. And... Um, 
generally have a a sort of quick playing, fast and ferocious gameplay. And I think it's going to work pretty well. So we're going to see. I've sort of taken a lot of things from a lot of sources, and we're going to have to see how well they work together. But um, I think it's going to be pretty fun. And I'm hoping I'm hoping the Thursday night guys are willing to play. I am trying to figure out if maybe this weekend I can convince somebody to um, test it out with me. Um, otherwise... I guess maybe next week I will try to figure out a time, figure out if I can get somebody to to test it out. Maybe if Jason has some free time and we can we can run it or who knows what else. Um, yeah, that would be that would be a lot of fun. So yeah, uh, I think that is going to be that. So. Um, Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I know I have not been putting out that many podcast episodes recently, and then here I am dropping a, a over an hour-long podcast episode on you guys. Um, I hope you enjoy the over an hour-long podcast episode because um, I certainly enjoyed recording it. I'm really excited about Barbarians of the Iron Throne, as I've talked about and as I'm sure you can tell. So we're going to see if, if it works out, hopefully – if I can convince somebody to try it out over the weekend, hopefully next time I um, next time I podcast sometime next week, early next week or something, I can um, report on how it performs in play. That would be very cool. Um, we'll see if I actually get to do that or if I have some work I need to do on Saturday and Sunday. So we'll see if I... Um, We'll see what goes on with that, how much I get done on Saturday and how much I decide I need to do, whether or not I'm even able to do kind of a, a test run on Saturday and if I can convince anybody to. But um, I'm going to put out some feelers, see see if there's anybody interested, and um, we'll see. We shall see. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.